A story called George. George. George wakes up early. He sits in his pink striped pyjamas at the edge of his bed and dangles his feet over his slippers on the carpeted floor. He scratches his head, rubs his eyes and picks up his alarm clock and looks at the time once again. Henrietta looks at him, yawns and goes back to sleep, lying as she does in the warm hollows left by his head upon the pillow. George peers at the time and then decides he needs to see it more clearly. He puts on his spectacles and studies the numbers once again and having looked, he scratches himself like a cat, puts his large feet into his split slippers, his toes pushing through the ragged ends and stands up and stretches his arms to the light bulb that is slightly out of reach above him. It's not switched on. It's still early, but the street lamp outside of his window lets in enough light through the holes and gaps in the curtains. George stiffly walks, or rather wobbles to the window, holding on to everything he can to stop the world from falling over. George making sure that his collection of misshapen, mismatching furniture is as real as he feels himself to be. George pulls back the curtains and looks down on the frosted street. The cars are covered with ice. The paper boy looks cold as he shuffles from door to door with his headphones on. He is singing, thinks George, as he sees puffs of breath blowing out from the lad's mouth. The telephone wires sag. A few blackbirds sit upon them and beyond the cold red rooftops like playing cards stacked against the sky. A rosy glow of dawn is growing brighter behind the tall twin chimneys of the paper factory. A milk float turns the corner and two lads jump and dash, delivering milk, eggs and bread to his neighbours. George looks down as the eldest lad, the tall, lanky boy who always opens his own gate with a slam. He hears the boy open his porch door and the bottles being placed in the wood-top box which closes with a resounding clap after the boy has gone. A Story About George, Part 2 George stretched again and turned back from the window. Henrietta was curled up in a ball of golden fur upon his pillow purring slightly as her stomach pushed gently in and out to the rhythm of the life within her. It was time to get dressed and ready for the day. George moved clumsily to the bathroom and peered short-sightedly into the mirror and grinned at himself. His broken and missing teeth, his cauliflower ears, his untidy mess of morning hair and his stubble of beard that had sprouted in the fertile dreams of his sleep. George blew upon the cold of the mirror and rubbed the image of himself again. Ah, that's better, he sighed and looked at himself again. Who will I be today? He laughed a little laugh and smiled broadly, his teeth suddenly again perfect, his hair immaculate and his cheeks and upper lip clear of hair. He sparkled. Dressing for George was always difficult because, well, 
because sometimes he never knew what he was wearing until it was on. Sometimes a suit, sometimes a jumper, sometimes jeans and a t-shirt, and very occasionally, so very occasionally, a dress or a skirt. You see, it all depended upon the closet. Today, he opened the closet door, stepped inside as he always did, and, as always, it was empty. He pulled the light switch cord and stepped inside, closing the lattice wooden door behind him. If anyone had asked him, he would have described it as a tickle or a feeling like a shiver or some kind of trembling that shook him and made him turn cold and then hot. And then, well, then he was dressed for the day. Underwear, socks, shoes, trousers, shirts, even on the coldest days. He had a hat, gloves and a scarf all provided to him by magic. In summer, it was quicker, of course. Sandals, shorts, t-shirts and sunshades. He preferred winter feeling, well, more protected somehow by the layers of clothing that covered him. It didn't take long. After just a few seconds, he would walk out of the closet, pull the light cord with an audible click and then... After closing the door, he would be fully dressed and ready for the day. George, part three. Here we go. Henrietta was always waiting for him, somehow knowing he was ready. She'd always known he had changed and would purr with approval, curl her tail about his ankles and meow in a way that made him feel good about the day to come. They would both walk down the narrow terraced cottage stairs, George's new clothes seemingly giving him some kind of extra zip in his stride, or the opposite, confirm his arthritic waddle and causing him his usual hip and back aches that was the normal state of affairs of his undressed self. If someone had asked or discovered, he became the clothes he wore, or rather, he became the clothes he was given, in manner, in age, in style and in health. It was all part of the plan, he thought. What I do and and who I become, what people think of me, I, I really don't have a choice, he muttered to himself. Breakfast was an easy matter. Milk and cream for Henrietta, two eggs, buttered toast, and a cup of tea or two, depending upon the weather. Two cups of teas for when it was cold, one for when it was summer, and sometimes half a cup when the knock came to say it was time to go out from his front door. The time always varied. Never the same knock, never the same hour. But as he sat and sipped his tea, he knew it would come. And like today, George was ready. He was always ready. The clothes gave him confidence and complimented that inner mischievous playful spirit that he supposed was the reason why he had been chosen in the first place and he never guessed by whom. Today, he was dressed in a cream summer linen suit, light brown summer brogues, a pale blue open neck shirt, and one of those tasteful summer hats that kept his face in half shadow, but allowed, somehow, for his eyes to sparkle again and his white teeth to visibly smile. He left the breakfast things neatly stacked upon the edge of the kitchen sink, ensured Henrietta had what she needed, and went to the entrance and ready for the knock on his door. 
Some days he felt he was ready. Some days sort of knowing when the knock might come. Today was one of those days. George, part four. Hmm, thought George, standing still, counting the seconds. There were no footsteps, just the knock three times, a brief pause, and then the fourth. He straightened his tie, lifted up his hat, tousled his hair, adjusted his jacket, winked at himself in the mirror, picked up his satchel, opened the door, and stepped outside. It was after dawn, early, bright, clear, and windy. He held on to his hat and walked along the small garden path. The small bushes, his flowers, for it appeared to be spring, small sticks, old crispy leaves, and a few pieces of wrapping paper, and of course the cherry tree, all moved at once, and seemingly in all directions. It was as if he walked in a tunnel of wind, but something was missing. Before he reached the gate, he looked up at the swirling sky. The clouds were vast and moving, in fleets of white and grey, great towers of sails, silence, and ships. Strange, thought George. Silence, silence. Slowly realising there was something wrong, he realised there was no sound. There was really no sound at all. He opened the gate. It was a red one and wooden and had a small spring on the top right-hand side that closed it, usually with a reassuring but sometimes annoying slam after one had walked through to the sidewalk. George walked through, held the gate wider than usual and then simply let it go from his hand. The gate closed in a wider-than-usual arc and shut with a resounding slap that rattled the hinges, made the wind roar, sent whistles and blasts of air through the telephone wires and opened a great cacophony of sound that flooded George's ears with a familiar rush of urban voices. Cars rushed by with the mumbled thudding of tyres across the uneven potholed roads. Electric bicycles hissed and hummed as occasional bells rang crisply through the thin morning air, and the slow whine and grumble of commuter trains rolled and rumbled over the bridge, over the blinking traffic lights that held up coughing, belching buses heading in queues to the paper factory. It was warm. George was pleased he was dressed as he was, although the hat was a fuss and bother as he had to hold it on or take it off and hold it again with his free hand. What a morning, he thought to himself, as he waited until he was guided what to do next, tapping slightly impatiently his right foot and looking at the moving colours, sounds and the effects of the invisible winds around him. The Story of George Part 5 George was apt to be too impatient, but today he needn't have worried. The invisible tap on his shoulder told him he was ready. Ahead of him, it was as if the world had been thrown into relief. George nodded to himself. Yes, he thought, as a golden pathway weaved in and out of hurrying people, rushing to work. It reflected off the passing windows of cars, 
shop windows and sparkled in golden splinters of light across the intersections. He opened his satchel, picked out the retractable stick and pressed a blue button that unfolded the hinged aluminium so that it extended his arm by half of its length again. A small umbrella canopy opened, no more than the size of an open hand. It was rigid and started to spin slowly in a rotating kaleidoscope of colours. There was a small accompanying buzz of sound, as if two excited bees had discovered a new spring flower and were sending location messages to each other. He held it up in the air like a regular umbrella, slightly tilted towards the light, and George began to walk along the edges of the golden glow. George muttered to himself, confirming directions, acknowledging people who stepped out of his way with brief and sometimes annoying comments towards him. He sometimes whistled or sang a familiar repetitious tune that would help him concentrate. He was never sure, never certain that anyone really saw him as he saw himself each morning. Nor could he believe that they could see him as he was dressed, nor his satchel and special books and tools that he used to find the kindnesses, as he called them. It was warm, not just the day, but the golden light and the rod and canopy he held. They radiated each a glow to and from the special light that guided him forward. George, part six. Following the humming buzz and murmur, the bends and corners and ever-twisting channels of light, of golden light, George found her lying on the floor in an abandoned shop entrance, wrapped in blankets, a few empty bottles around her with litter in piles about his feet. She looked dead to the world. Even when she is awake, thought George, the world is dead to her. George retracted his stick. A crowd of people hurried by, no one looking, no one seeing, no one caring in the invisible world of passing by. George wondered if he was as visible as the woman in rags at his feet. He placed his satchel onto his toes, careful not to place it upon the stone-tiled floors. He opened the two clasps and placed the folding device inside and took out the small leather purse. He shook it slightly and held it up to his eyes as if he was able to see inside of it and smiled and nodded to himself. He opened the pressed pocket and with his thumb and forefinger took a pinch, a smidgen of green granular powder and rubbed it between his fingers. George had forgotten the warmth and heat that infused his fingers and spread like fire over and inside his glowing hands they all started to glow with a soft, gentle warmth of orange. He sprinkled and then blew the fine powder over the sleeping body, the rags and exhausted breathing, the curled up sleeping bag and the collection of belongings that fitted into the two torn and ripped canvas bags that overflowed with the choking dreams of memory. The figure began to fade, to glow and then fade again disappearing into the cold stone concrete floor until all that was left, all that remained, was a single ring of green and gold. Speaking of George, seven. 
George closed his purse and put it in his left-hand blazer pocket, reached inside his satchel and carefully lifted the unfolded scarf and placed it in his right hand. With his left, he reached down to the floor, picked up the ring with his fingers and then held it up to the windswept sky. Assured that he could see through to the circular eye of clouds and blue, he then swiftly opened the scarf, shook it with some vigour and then threaded it through the ring until halfway there was a ring and a mosaic of threaded scarf on each side. With a bow and a flourish to the floor, he tied the scarf around his neck and let the ring dangle upon his tie. George never looked about him, never saw or bothered that he was seen, because he knew he wasn't. Somehow he was there, but not there, as if he alone held the keys to the world. And perhaps, he thought, I do. He often wondered why he had been chosen, but didn't dwell on why and this morning was no exception. George collected his day's takings, as he called them, and stepped out of the lines and filaments of the glowing light and back into his every day. The park bench between the two beech trees was empty, as it always was. He sat down, heavily, a little tired, a little worn, but feeling again he had accomplished his task. George looked around him. There were a few joggers, a few homeless people sharing a bottle or two, a young mother running with her child in a buggy, two young lovers walking hand in hand, and two teenagers throwing a frisbee over the volleyball court. And above was the sky, a majestic arc of radiant blue, and the wind murmured and whispered through the fresh spring leaves and branches. It looked like he was about to have lunch. George smiled to himself, knowing what would come next, the careful step-by-step -step order of things, the small, slight play of hands, and then, well, the surprise, the surprise that would be on both sides when it was done. George Seven He opened his satchel, lifted out the purse, the special umbrella-like stick, and placed them on his knees. He then lifted the scarf and ring, eased the latter from the scarf and placed the scarf beside him. George then proceeded to place the purse, the green gold ring upon the scarf and the retractable umbrella diagonally across them all. He was ready. It was a kind of life resetting that someone from somewhere, George was never allowed to tell from whom, or from where, even in those quiet moments when he could have explored how it had all come to be. Another story, enough said, he would mutter to himself, or to Henrietta, or both, had she been listening, had given him the tools, the satchel, and the what and the how, but he was left to his own sensibilities as to why. George simply raised and kissed the ring. He placed it upon the scarf unfolded, as if it was a figure draped gracefully over the seat and the back of the bench, and the ring? He simply put it gently next to him upon the scarf. He then opened the purse and reached in with his fingers, and pinched another tiny amount of powder. He sprinkled it like a fine salt over the scarf, and closely in and around the ring. George opened the leather satchel and placed it between his feet. Suddenly, it felt warmer. George opened his collar. 
took off his jacket and draped it on the back of the bench behind him. He expected this, but it always took him by surprise at the time just before it happened. The clouds appeared above his head, above the tree, a tower of white and grey that rose like a hand into the deeper blue of the larger sky. It began to rain, large dollops of heavy white droplets of falling rain. Somehow, he remained dry, but beside him, to his right, a silver incandescent glow took shape along the scarf, and the green-gold ring began to shimmer and shade, fading in and out, pulsing as the rain began to assume a shape, as if it was washing down and around the growing life of a figure that was without form. But something was there. Something was taking substance, taking form and shape, and slowly came to resemble a human figure. George, nine. She felt herself sitting on a park bench. She could feel the laths under her. She could hear birds and children playing in colours of sounds around her. She opened her eyes gradually. Everything was sharp, not blurred. She could see trees, bushes, a perfect blue of sky and a rich, loamy earth smell that emanated from the damp, wet earth around her. She felt good. She looked in vain for what she felt had been forgotten around her. There were no bottles, no plastic bags of food, none of her own canvas bags of her tattered clothes. She had no dryness of mouth, nor that familiar cloud of dizziness and disassociation. She felt unusually hungry and warm, and a strange sense of well-being that reminded her of times that had gone before. She felt her hair, normally a tangled matted mess of grease and knots and split ends, but it felt cleaned, brushed and combed. She was surprised and turned and looked about her. A man was sitting closer than he ought to have been beside her, and yet, and yet he felt familiar somehow. Odd, she thought, feeling a beautiful, soft and patterned scarf around her neck. That's not mine, nor... She looked down at her fingers and saw a ring, a strange green-gold ring upon her middle finger, the middle finger of her right hand. Nor is this. She attempted to pull and twist it off, but it was as if she had always worn it. It felt warm, and she was sure it glowed when she looked away from it. She looked at herself. She was dressed in a cream-trousered suit, perfect for the weather, relaxed, cool, yet businesslike. George 10. The final chapter. Here we go. George, George, George. He nodded. George nodded and lifted his hat up and down and whispered good morning. Always good, he thought to himself. A little politeness helps after a crisis, most of the time. The scarf is yours to keep, he heard himself saying. And the ring, he continued, a reminder who you were. She looked at him, really noticing for the first time his immaculate suit, 
His hat, his open neck shirt, he was somehow vague. His clothes were really the only thing defining him. His face, features, neck and hands seemed a little, well, pasty, she thought. It was as if his clothes were hiding something. She couldn't quite put her finger on it. She looked down at the child's umbrella between them. It was one of those toy ones that could fold into sections, and the canopy was a kaleidoscope of colours. A bit small, though, she thought out loud. Yes, George heard himself say again. Yes, that's yours too. If you spin it, it will weave once again your stories so that you can remember who you were before. He paused, looking her sideways in the eyes. Before I woke you from the dream of your life. A touch dramatic, he thought to himself, but it was true. She had dreamed her life into, well, in her case, into a bottle or two. She listened, sceptical, but could not ignore the feeling of health, of cleanliness, and simply the sense of overwhelming newness that was flooding her senses and her thinking. She was thinking, of course, of her home for the first time in many years, her daughters, her mother, her carers who were guided and sought to bring her away from the eclipses of choices that had hidden her from her real self. George, though, was not surprised. He really wasn't surprised when she asked him the question. Everybody did when he rekindled the lives of the lost and lonely. Sometimes earlier, sometimes later, and always with that slight tone of disbelief and wonder when he answered. The question, who are you? She asked it with the usual three words, and George heard the plea in her voice. Knowing as he did, that she knew the answer deep inside before she had even asked the question. George hesitated just for a fraction of a second and turned around. With his hands on his knees, he turned around so as to look at her directly with kindness, love and not a little surprise directly into her questioning and wanting to believe eyes. I don't have them, George heard himself say. I really don't have them. But even as he did, George thought to himself, I was never meant to fly. <laughs>